the things that are the same, you know, is this lifelong curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 and that's probably like 95% of the interviews that I've done uh, point to that. And, and the other thing I would say is, is this rigor, or we all share a rigor around wanting to do the best that we can yeah. for, for our clients and the, and then that change. So that, but then that changes the scope of what we do. Um, and this is the thing that I think was really has been, has actually astounded me is all of the guests that have hit, hit on this particular question, um, have all prioritized action over the actual scientific rigor of the insight. In other words, they're better off delivering an insight that is 60% right than 100% right or even 90% right a day late. Real People is produced by Square Holes, an agency conducting and publishing customized explorative research on key consumer markets, customers, and population segments. Square Holes also provides associated consulting and support to ignite positive business and social behavior change. Visit squareholes.com for more. Radio, hello there. My name is Jason Dunstone and welcome to Real People, where we interview average and not-so-average people, academics, researchers and leading thinkers to help us better understand what real people believe and how they behave. Today we are joined by Jamin Brazil, a market research entrepreneur and tech pioneer. Fresno, California-based Jamin is the super popular host of the Happy Market Research podcast with more than 300 episodes in which he interviews consumer insight and research professionals and entrepreneurs from across the world. Jamin comes from a position of influence, having founded top online survey platform Decipher in 2000 and research platform Focus Vision in 2016. An active contributor to the research industry and supporting early stage companies throughout California, Jamin is adjunct professor at California State University and an all-round nice guy. We discuss the world in 2020, research trends, entrepreneurship, and much, much more. Uh, let's not waste a moment. On with the show. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay, now, from the beginning. Thank you for joining us today, Jamin. Can you um, maybe just tell me, tell us where you where, where are you coming, where are you calling in from, and what, what's it like? Uh, to California, yep. Central California. Yep. So we are forty miles away from the Creek Fire, um, which is one of many lar- about thirty fires here in California, um, and it's been three weeks now for us of quite literally the the moon and sun when they're visible they are red yeah wow tent is so intense yeah it's been crazy Mm. that's uh, australia had uh bushfires across much of australia Mm. end of last year through to early this year and it was the worst i can ever recall it and it's certainly um I'm not necessarily. I'm not a religious person, but biblical. And when you look, come into the city and look at the skies, and yeah, very, very, very sort of scary. So, like, what's what's the what's the mood with all of that going on and COVID, and what's what's the mood in your life? You know, I think 
We're very fortunate in that my family has been untouched by COVID. So uh, everyone's healthy and, you know, social distancing, of course, um, uh, sheltering in place. So we've been fairly disciplined on that front. A little bit more risk as it relates with, so my oldest is in college now. Um, it's joining, going through joining a fraternity and that whole, you know, yeah. creation of a brotherhood in a virtual context um, experience, something that I just can't quite relate with. Uh, and then on the other side of the spectrum, I've got a uh, five-year-old who's in first grade and he is doing virtual school. So uh, he is on Zoom literally five to six hours a day uh, with scheduled breaks and that's five days a week. Um, and it's it was that was like a rough sort of patch getting into it, but now he's adapted and engaging and still a little bit squirrely occasionally, but I'd say his actual like learning has been really good. So, you know, I'd say in terms of like at a personal level, we've been very fortunate and um, I'm very thankful um, that, you know, we're, we're in the spot that we are and kind of making the best that we can out of what we got going on. Mm. So it's a year of gratitude, isn't it? Of trying to lock into those things that you're grateful for rather than the the shit that's going down everywhere, really. It's- yeah, I think that's a that's a interesting way of framing it. My wife and I, uh, one of my dear friends, is the head of a gang task force for local uh, for our local police department, and um, he he gave me this like interesting life hack, right? Which is he starts every day with a, doing a little journaling, and he writes down three things that uh, he's thankful for. And then one thing that would make today great. And so because normally I travel five days a week, uh, in, I, but I've been in a spot where I just haven't been able to travel. So consequently, I've been spending a lot more time at home and it's really helped out my, uh, not to say that our relationship was bad, but it's been really nice to be able to spend time with my wife in the mornings. And so we've actually adopted that, that tradition where the first thing that we sit down and talk about are the three things that we're thankful for. Mm. So yeah, I, I do. I do think it has really been an opportunity to figure out what you're going to focus on, and then like f- help help frame the world accordingly. Yeah, and I think it's really important. I've, I've, the last few years, I've had a bit of a practice where I tend to meditate before bed, which is not necessarily the, the best time, but it's mm-hmm. a good sort of time to switch my brain off. And I tend to put my head on the pillow and kind of go through what are the things you, what are the things you're grateful for today. Or just good things today, and almost I just take you. I, I tend to find I doze off in that process, but I'll go a bit of a full on day, and it's just nice to kind of almost reflect. I think sometimes it is in the kind of chaos of just everything. It's just you can sort of lose lose track of that, really. So cool. Yeah, I'm going to go back to your childhood, where we start all of these interviews. What were you like around about eight? I was terrible. <laughs> How were <are> you terrible? <laughs> I mean, I was, I've always been a rule breaker, so um, and and a bit of a loner and kind of a social deviant. What I mean by that is, like, you know, not operating in the center. I've always operated on the outside, um, and so I think I, I know, not think. I caused my parents and family a tremendous amount of grief growing up. You know, getting into trouble, some of it even legal. Um, not that I'm proud of that by any means, uh, but I was always trying to like skirt the edges and figure out, you know, the the ways you could like get around different things for a positive outcome. And, and, um, and I think part of that is, is, you know, my sister and I grew up in a house where my dad 
and mom are both entrepreneurs, but they also both had jobs. So that meant that they were doing their side hustles in the evenings. Uh, we grew up on a small farm and um, there's just a lot of, you know, so my sister and I, when we weren't working, we were, uh, had a lot of, a lot of free time. So I think, you know, part of that is you have to be creative with how you spend your free time. Um, you know, whether it's like blowing things up because you've figured out <laughs> you have space, everything's safe. Don't get me wrong. Well, I mean, quote unquote, safe, safe for the seventies uh, and eighties. Mm. So uh, yeah, I, I, it was, it, you know, my childhood was one where there's a lot of um, fun and imagination and creativity in terms of how you spent your time. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah, and, and, it, that's an interesting kind of point. And you use the word entrepreneur in that and risk taking and, um, mm. Some of these discussions, people have talked about how they used to do that. They used to kind of be let free, and they'd, they'd one um, Steve Sammartino talked about kind of growing up on a farm and jumping from one massive hay bale to another, and every now and then breaking something. But he was allowed to do that. But then nowadays, you get to your, your kids and you try to kind of protect them and almost hack the perfect kids. Where back back in the day, back in sort of I don't know the a few decades ago or more, <laughs> um, there was a bit more risk taking that goes through. And then you kind of start, I sort of often ponder if you take all the risk out of people, out of human nature, does that take away the entrepreneurs? And I think the reality is you don't take the risk out. I think that the risk just becomes different. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, I think about my children, you know, um, my pause is because I'm thinking about, about like the framing of my questions or my, my response to that. Um, but you know, the, the accessibility that kids have nowadays to things that could be potentially harmful is much greater than it was when I was a kid. Yeah. So that's different risk. Yeah, exactly. Different, different risks. And sometimes some risks, you know, potentially even greater. I mean, you'd reference like physical risk of jumping, um, you know, I would on a Saturday, if I didn't have to work, I would, um, uh, we had these three wheelers. These are like, you know, motorized kind of like not motorcycles, but almost. Mm-hmm. And, um, I would strap a gun to the back of the, you know, 22 to the back of the thing. I'd pack up my own lunch and I would leave in the morning at whatever time. And then I would follow these railroad tracks and I would just go on an adventure by myself yeah. for eight plus hours. I mean, far yeah. <laughs> with no cell phone. Right. Like no, no visibility and no accountability and just kind of like free. Mm. Um, my kids don't necessarily have that freedom. Right. Um, but at the same time, in a minute, they could be in their rooms on their phones and have access to things, you know, many other kinds of things. Mm. So there is this sort of like, you know, I was trapped by, by a geography, like how far I could travel. And that really shaped my world. Whereas this next generation is not defined by that. They're defined in a digital context. And, and, and now I think about like, you know, my five-year-old, his comfortability with interacting with other humans in a digital context, we don't even know what this means. If I would have told you that you're going to stick a five-year-old in front of a computer five days a week for five to six hours, everybody would have thought that was the dumbest thing in the world, but it's actually happening and working. Mm -hmm. So so like, th- so the social engineering that's taking place right now um, is really significant. Yeah. Okay. So, so do you, do you encourage encourage that risk taking 
in your children, your younger Mm-mm. child and your older children? No, I want to put them in a bubble. i do i'm I'm, you know i mean i mean i actually i say that tongue-in-cheek i i um i one of my core sort of parenting not to say i'm a great parent do everything i say now do the opposite you'll be fine probably (laughs) um is it's 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 kind of like a explanation of outcomes so it's kind of like you can do that but this is the outcome or you can do this and this is going to be the outcome right so um, don't eat your greens, no dessert, eat your greens, you get dessert, right? I mean, it kind of like boils down to that sort of simplicity. And with my, as my children have gotten older, you know, the, the not des- having dessert becomes a much bigger, a much bigger issue, right? So, um, you know, if you, if you, uh, and they haven't to my knowledge done this, but if they drink and drive, for example, then that can have life altering consequences, mm-hmm. Um, and, and we as adults, we just can't like, we can't control that anymore. There's no, um, bubble that I can put them in that can protect them from that, mm. except for, you know, them making the right choices in those moments. Yeah. So, but some of those yeah. social norms change, don't they really through over, over the decades, uh, the social norm about say drink driving has changed, but then other social norms that, uh, are, mm. other risks get introduced and, and maybe not, not as, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I definitely think that's, I think that's a, a really good point about the about the social the transition into social norms but i do think that the principle still holds irrespective mm. so would you refer to yourself as a researcher or an entrepreneur or a high uh, that's a great sorry that's a great question yeah, that's a great question um and of course we don't define ourselves in a single in a binary way um it's very much a venn diagram if i had to um say which one of my circles was bigger i would say entrepreneurship um, but having said that, uh, over the last, you know, 25 years of my career, I've fallen in love with market research. So, um, you know, there's a, like, I am a researcher at the absolute core. Uh, I, I love the process. I love the outcome, the impact of business, the, um, interviewing. I mean, literally I'd love, love all of that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's a, I'm very much a, a researcher, but I'm also a you know, to your point, I'm all, I'm also thinking about, and this this term entrepreneurship is actually a really funny term. It's so, it's it's become very trendy. Uh, I mean, you know, my parents didn't call themselves entrepreneurs; they were trying to make more money, <laughs> better their lives, <laughs> yeah. right? Uh, and so, um, uh, and they still wouldn't think of themselves as entrepreneurs. Uh, so, yeah, I, I I really think of entrepreneur as and my previous business partner, Jamie Plunkett, and myself defined it like that, like this. Um, we're just fundamentally lazy. So we want to figure out better ways to get the hard work done so that we don't have to do it anymore, right? So your three circles are researcher, entrepreneur, and a bit lazy. Uh, I would say probably <laughs> the big la- the lazy is like around the entire, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Around the entire motivator. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. I often sort of think that people kind of go into their careers and they they become adults and then they realize this adulting is not that much fun. So how how do we kind of find more time for for not adulting? And then, and yeah. then your career is sort of working towards that. Um, I know that you get to that midlife crisis of getting a combi van or getting a whatever to to stop adulting to to be a bit more lazy. That's, that's career you know, success. That's, that's- I think that's kind of it. It's a, that's another thing that's interesting is, is, um, the role of video games right now mm. in, um, adulthood. So like 
there's a lot of gaming dads that exist. Um, you know, guys in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and, and I haven't been exposed to the ones beyond that yet. But, you know, there's like a real community of guys that are out mm-hmm. there that are can't wait to get home and blow shit up with their friends. <laughs> Right. Yeah, I've got a couple of business associates, and you'll be sitting down, and they'll be the the partner of a major, I'd say, an accounting firm, and they'll go, "I was gaming last night," and then the person I was sort of, um, I, I was you know, on my team, and he goes, "Oh, I've got to go now. My mum's asked me to come to dinner." <laughs> you don't even realise. You go, "Oh my goodness me! Wow, there we go." <laughs> sort of having a what would that be? Sort of like a a forty year age or forty or more age age um, difference. There we go. Um, I've been interested in the discussion you've had going through, Jamin, about that risk-taking in your DNA and then the researcher. Like I, many people out there would go, researchers are very dry and, and very systematic and it's very methodical, mm-hmm. um, and yeah. then that risk-taking. And I, I, I would look back at myself at, at some of the things you talk obviously different things, but sort of similar things about um, going wandering and, and taking levels of risk and trying to sort of push the boundaries. Uh, and I guess the sort of the, the risk taking would come into our research agency as well. So, what, how do you like that balancing of risk and research? You know, I think a good researcher at their core is this is uh, something I've heard a lot is um, always curious, hmm. and that curiosity isn't born the moment they become a researcher by profession. Um, it happens well before that, and a good researcher has enough knowledge about a lot of different things to be able to recognize patterns and see how things fit together. And so for me, I think that, I think that, I think the risk taking, if you want to think of it like that happens when, you know, like in 2000 or sorry, 1996, uh, when I started my market research career, I was doing in mall intercepts uh, and caddy based research. Mm-hmm. Being a tech, having a technical background, I quickly realized I hated doing that and that there was a population online that didn't work for every project, but some projects. And I could do an online survey for, you know, uh, hundredths of the cost and 10 times the speed. So, you know, then it became more of a question of like our game really of like, okay, how do I find clients that fit that profile? Right. Who have customers in that framework, who have customers online. Um, So, yeah, I, I think, I think, you know, the, the entrepreneurship part of it is, and again, I, I'm really tired of the term, but I'll keep having to use it because it is like the anchor point. Um, uh, it's, it's really more of like, how do I, being willing to think about the processes that you have and figure out like how you can get them done better. And then the difference between a entrepreneur and an entrepreneur is really just, you know, making the investment to make it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, and I, I I I like that word curios, curiosity that we tend to use as a lot a lot as well. And, that, and, and one of the patterns across all of the interviews we've done is the successful people, whether it's AI or whether it's research or whether it's mm-hmm. advertising, the consistent theme seems to be that they're innately or they were innately curious as as kids, and they've kind of maintained that. They've maintained that, I guess, that beginner's mind, that childlike curiosity throughout, and solving problems yeah. and. Yeah, it all comes together, doesn't it? Yeah, I totally agree that with that. Yeah, yeah good. Um, so going from being a child to being, say, the co-founder of Decipher, what's what's the sort of what's the step what's the steps in doing that? You've kind of explained it a little bit as you've gone through, but 
tell our listeners a bit more about, say, Decipher as one of, I guess, one of your, was it one of your earlier startups? Yeah, or? well, I mean, it was probably my most significant by, yeah. by a long shot. Um, I call it, I think of it like stumbling forward. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, as I articulated, you know, in 1996, uh, a gentleman named Dick McCullough, uh, owner of and operator of Macro Consulting out of Palo Alto, California, um, saw fit to hire me as an analyst, which was a, I don't know, I wouldn't necessarily in hindsight have thought that was a good move, <laughs> but he took a risk. Literally the same day, um, he hired uh, who would become my, my um, best friend and uh, co-founder, Jamie Plunkett. And um, so we, you know, two guys about the same age, he had just graduated from Stanford um, and we, you know, started day one together. Uh, we both sort of had that same ethos of um, uh, innately curious, but then also hardworking. So, you know, we were putting in long, like a 10 hour day was a light day for us. Uh, <laughs> I remember one time I did a, a expense report or not expense report, I'm sorry, a, a timesheet. And it was literally 110 hours in that, in that week. And you know how it goes. Right. Um, and I, we weren't hourly by the way. So there was like no motivation to <laughs> inflate the numbers. Um, and I, I thought to myself, I actually don't think there's that many hours. I clearly made a mistake, right? <laughs> I had to sum up the number of hours in the week. So um, anyway, we, we came from this like hardworking uh, blue collar background. And so we shared that ethos of getting stuff done, but then also being, um, you know, we're fortunate in that we we were smart enough. I put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, you know, fell in love with research and then, um, I started doing more and more online research. Uh, Dick is well known for, or Richard now is well known for, um, uh, his multivariate capabilities. Yeah. Um, and, and I have tremendous respect for him. It's never going to be like my strongest suit by any means. And so, um, I left and then started, uh, decipher and then Jamie joined me about uh, three months later along with a third gentleman Ervin Andreasen based out of Denmark um, so you know that Ervin joined not as a paid person he just joined as a friend hacker really yeah, okay. um, he had some equity in the business and Jamie and I were living hand to mouth we didn't actually raise any funds or anything along those lines we just quite literally you know, would sell a project, do the project and sell a project and do a project and hopefully get paid in the middle. Um, in fact, my first, my first big win, which happened my third week after starting the business with, was with, uh, Intuit, the makers of QuickBooks. Mm-hmm. Um, and Quicken, I'll never forget. So Debbie Wong, who's still in the industry, uh, she, I had asked her if she had any work, any surveys that needed to be programmed. And she said, yes, in fact, I do have one. And so she uh, uh, asked me how much it would cost. And, you know, I don't have any idea how much, how much do you have <laughs> is the, what I wanted to say. And I threw out a number and I honestly don't remember what the number was. Well, we're 10, it's a thousand dollars. And she responded back quickly and said, I have to get three other bids. I've already gotten one that is lower. And I went ahead and went with that person uh, that will program it. And so I literally picked up the phone immediately and called her and said, Debbie, you don't understand. I'm sitting in my apartment. I have one month of savings. And if you don't give me this project, I might have to move out. 
And she literally, and I still remember her voice, she said, fine, I'll give you the project. Now I've got to have a really difficult conversation. And she <laughs> hung up the phone. And then Intuit became one of our longest standing customers uh, and, and most important customers for many, many years mm-hmm. um, as they, they lasted through the whole dot-com bust and, and, and whatnot. So yeah. anyway, yeah, I mean, there's, there's that sort of like, you just have to be willing to get dirty in the business. Mm. Um, and, and Jamie and I were always like right in the middle of the actual work of the business, whether it was calling on accounts or, um, actually programming surveys. I mean, I've programmed over 3000 surveys in my career. Yeah, okay. Um, so, You've got a little you know, book that that, counts some little stick figures that. I mean, I programmed <laughs> two surveys this week already. You can believe that. So, you know, I mean, so at my ripe old age, you're still on the tools middle. with, even with your celebrity yeah. status. I don't know about that. Let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, what are some like? I always um, use the word entrepreneur a few times, but that old idea of entrepreneurship, and we've been going our businesses sixteen years at the end of this year, and certainly when we first started, it wasn't a what you didn't talk about becoming a, an entrepreneur. You just we just set up a business, and we we got we got some investors involved, and and all of all of that. So, go back five or ten years, particularly in Australia, we we did, weren't as sort of. I don't know. I think we're as an entrepreneurial culture as the US, maybe. But we, we are fairly, we're, we're fairly um, entrepreneurial, but not maybe not as, not as um, the the but the uh, the height of what you've got to achieve doesn't seem to be as high as um, needing to become a unicorn in the US. It seems. Um, but the 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 theory of becoming an entrepreneur versus the reality in running Decipher. What was the, what were some of the the things you learnt that you maybe took you by surprise? What's a, what's a few kind of lessons you went? Wow, now I've done that. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm now wiser. Yeah. Um, everything I learned that defined me as wiser was very painful. And my late grandfather used to say, there's two ways to learn a lesson. One is go through the mistake yourself or the other is learn from somebody else. I have just not been successful at learning from other people, unfortunately. So, um, my lessons were really around, I would say two things. One is people management, which I believe at its core has self-awareness. And then the other is business management, which is a process of reverse engineering what you want to accomplish. Mm. Yeah. And and is that about understanding when you say self-awareness of understanding where your gaps are? So there was a, um, uh, before video like this became, you know, prevalent, there was Uber conference, which has a, um, which, you know, done through your phone, uh, or conference system. And it would give you a, um, report on who spoke, how long during the meeting before Uber conference, I felt like I spoke 20% of the time during a meeting. Mm Mm-hmm. After Uber conference, I realized I spoke 90% of the time during a meeting. Yeah, okay. So the self-awareness for me was, wow, that you don't learn when you speak. You learn when you listen. Yeah. So ask better questions yeah. became the point for me. So it's that, that sort of like blindness or unaware, me being unaware of how much I was talking. And then, you know, obviously with that, you've got to have the willingness to say, okay, is that a behavior I want to change or keep? And then, you know, act accordingly. So I, I literally, every week, would go back and analyze how, or look at, not analyze, but, you know, look at 
my, how much I'd been speaking in meetings, and I had a goal for myself every single week. So I think it's that sort of like rigor that you need that I need to apply. Probably everybody else has it naturally um, in order to uh, just become a better person and somebody that can be more empathetic and connect more with with uh, the people that I work with. Mm. So you're ever improving yourself. I think it's. I think sometimes there's an, an assumption that just because you're running the business, you know all the answers, but you, mm-hmm. you're also learning as you go and maybe more importantly having to learn as you go. It's, it's just the way it, the way it is. Um, I, well, you think about square holes, yeah. right? You've, you've, um, you said 16 years? Yeah, yeah just about, yeah. yeah. Yeah, 16 years. And you think about where you are now versus where you started, right? I mean... I don't know what you started, how, how lavish that experience was, but I mean, you know, I was on a card table. Mm. <laughs> right. Do you get a sense across different countries in the world um, that are more entrepreneurial in a research sense than others? Say comparing the US with, with um, UK, Australia? I don't. Um, I, I, I think that and I don't know if this is accurate, but on the interactions that I've had, which are, you know, on my podcast, um, maybe a fourth, if not a third of my guests are international. Yeah. Um, I've been surprised at the similar view the researchers have and techniques and methodologies and core values that they hold. Um, across, you know, geography. Um, the, the things that are the same, you know, is this lifelong curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 and that's probably like 95% of the interviews that I've done, uh, point to that. And, and the other thing I would say is, is this rigor we all share a rigor around wanting to do the best that we can for, for our clients and the, and then that change. So that, but then that changes the scope of what we do. Um, And this is the thing that I think was really has been, has actually astounded me is all of the guests that have hit, hit on this particular question um, have all prioritized action over the actual scientific rigor of the insight. In other words, they're better off delivering an insight that is 60% right than 100% right or even 90% right a day late. Yeah. So the the trade-off there that we make is in time, we've got to operate research because research, I believe, is the rudder of decision or the rudder of action inside of businesses, modern businesses, successful businesses. Mm-hmm. When, so when, when you get, obviously there's research entrepreneurs that might run a research agency, I guess traditional to a certain extent if there's any such thing, and then there's, there's research entrepreneurs that are, have set up a business to a tech tech entrepreneurs. So obviously we've got, I guess, just one argument I would make is that often the bigger entrepreneurs in research the like i'm going to say like the groups like qualtrics or or even survey monkey and the likes came from outside of research they they they're not researchers who innovate into a tech right they moved often. in they moved yeah they moved into the space and then you look at like qualtrics which are not qualtrics excuse me uh confirm it which was a 
early mover. I mean, they, they started in, I think it was 1996. Um, and then their survey platform followed relatively later. But like, I mean, that's a real business um, uh, out of the Netherlands, yeah. I think is where it started. So, um, you know, you do have big companies that have made big impacts on our industry that were started outside of, of the U.S. I mean, Ipsos is another great mm. example. Even during this time, they've been doing, you know, relatively well. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think I would also broaden the, and this gets maybe down to more of like my view of the world as opposed to how everybody else decides to look at it. But like, we think of entrepreneurship as this, like almost it has to happen at a business level, but I think it's really more of a, more of a, like you can be an, I guess the term is entrepreneur. Like you can apply the same principles of creativity to drive positive outcome um, and not have your own business. Right. Yeah. And I think about the employees that have worked for me in the past and, and still do the ones that I'm it, that are invaluable for me are the ones that treat the thing that I'm working on, the project I'm working on, like it's their own project. And, and if they do, meaning that they're happy to do whatever it takes in order to get it done. And they're also not afraid to raise their hand when they see an opportunity for improvement. I think that's kind of the cornerstone of, for entrepreneurship. You know, we start with this, we personally experience a problem and then we extrapolate that the market may be experiencing a similar problem. So whatever you deliver, where it's a service or, pro- or software, it's specific to you, the founder market fit, right? Mm. And then from founder market fit, you know, hopefully you've got some of it right. And then you can move into actually delivering that same value to other, uh, to, a broad- to a broader market. Yeah. And that point you make about on entrepreneurship, Jamin, is an interesting one. So is that about the personalities of your staff joining your team? Is that about people joining your team or an organisation, research agency, etc., who like what your vibe's about and want to join that? And they're just they're, that's just their personality. They want to drive change uh, from the inside out. Or is it about the culture of the organisation? I'm assuming it's a bit of both, but... How do, how do you, like yeah. as a leader, how do you create that environment? I think one thing I've come to realize is that you have customers, they pay you money, mm-hmm. but there's the reason that they're your customers, they like you. And I know this sounds so uh, trite, but you, you do business with people that you like. Yeah. Right. Just fundamentally. So your real, the only intellectual property that you have is access to your customer. Like there's, it doesn't matter how great your tech, look at Qualtrics. It doesn't Mm. matter how great their technology is. At the end of the day, they've got the largest sales force and a highly active and incentivized sales force, right? So the reason they're winning is because their sales force is hustling and dominant Mm -hmm. in the space. The, the, yeah, I, I think that too often we think that the customer relationship is like more secondary, yeah. but you know, the terms of trade that, that we come up with, or in other words, how we monetize that relationship. And it sounds very kind of like uh, whorish in a way, but I don't mean it like that because you're actually adding value to your customer's life and mm-hmm. they appreciate that contribution. 
right? They really, really do. But at the end of the day, they're going to keep working with you because they like you. Because there's always another software platform out, a better mousetrap. Mm -hmm. There's always something cheaper. There's always something better. There's always something faster. The reason the customer doesn't jump around all these different new things is because they like something about what it is that they're finding with you and yours. Mm -hmm. And employees are the same way. And, and so kind of wrapping that up, I think that the big motivator of an organization in a market is understanding what your true value is that you're going to contribute to that, to that sphere, right? And so for me, it's making market researchers' lives better. Like, that's what I want to do. And if I'm doing that, then I feel like I'm accomplishing, right, my, my personal why. Mm-hmm. And it allows then my staff to kind of follow in that same framework and it helps them kind of understand and, and decide and make the, make the, uh, decision on how they should spend their time in order to have that accomplishment. Mm. So sometimes on our projects, we'll lose money. Yeah. I've got a project right now with a client, um, not a big client. Uh, and, I don't know that they ever will be a client, but we're losing money on this particular project, but we're going to ride this thing yeah, <laughs> down, yeah. right? Um, and the reason why is because... Because you made a commitment that? to the project and... Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. We made a commitment to it and we're going to honor it. And, we li- and honestly, part of it is too, we just really like the company, mm-hmm. the people, I mean, that are at the, at the company. Um, and, and, you know, that's just kind of like where we're going to... where We're just going to work as, to our, our fingers to the bone in order mm. to make that, that That's happen. quite fascinating, isn't it? I'd... I'd have conversations every now and then with let's say big four accounting firms for example and groups like that and I go well how do you how do you charge and they go oh it's billable hours and this is how it works and I go oh maybe we should be looking at that a bit better because every now and then we'll have a project that all kind of the time we put into it is sort of a little bit off the rails but generally speaking it works quite well we we tend to have it so it's a, a fixed cost and and we do it and we do it until it's done to the standard we're happy with um but I do wonder when you sort of have these organizations that are billable hours versus uh, providing mm-hmm. that sort of successful accomplishment of a mission like that mission outcome, I think is, is quite a different ethos, isn't it really? Uh, I mean, it, it quite literally is in my, in my opinion, but you know, even, even in those, even in those examples, a lot of times, the times that I've, you know, engaged with big four accounting firms, you know, they're, they're still going on out of their way to yeah. build a relationship and wine and dine and, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. You can't wine and dine now, but you know what I mean? So there's... You can in Adelaide. I, <laughs> you right. can in Australia. Yeah, Zoom, Zoom virtual drinks. <laughs> no, no, no. We can, we, we've got restaurants open and our, um, tra- our, our local tourism and, and um, travel is booming because people can sort of travel. You can't, you can't leave the state, but... <laughs> well, you can. No, they're, they're, right. the border restrictions are coming down, so, which is great. But, yeah, I, I know. That, but it, that's really interesting. So it is about finding relationships... That, that that match your ethos, client relationships, team exactly. relationships, the leader kind of guiding by um, living and breathing that ethos. I had Mark Sass was a very, he was actually my very first customer at uh, Decipher. Um, and he was a uh, sole, I guess we call him entrepreneur. He would consider himself a business person right out of Cincinnati um, had a handful of clients. Um, and I remember my first project with him, I had given him, given him a bid. I can't remember how much it was, say it's $10,000 and it came time to invoice him. And I invoiced him like 9,500. So not like a material difference, but it was less. Um, and the reason why is because 
you know, it was what was expected to go into that was just different mm-hmm. than, right. The, the cost basis was just lower. I needed a certain amount of margin. And I made the margin that I said I would, and that was it. Um, he became for decipher a top five customer spend wise for almost my entire career in that business, which again, a sole guy, right. Yeah. And, and, and so and that's a big for us that's a big that's a big account mm-hmm. for for everybody that's a mm-hmm. big account there's nobody that doesn't want that account yeah. but it's one guy right and so i think that what you so what he would do sometimes is he would write me a check me being the business a check for um a bigger amount and the reason why he'd say jamin i've got the margin i just want to be able to bless you with it and so you can deve- it seems uh, insane but you can actually develop a relationship with a customer where they actually have like your best interests in mind some of the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what what are some of your I guess the insights you found over your many many podcasts and it was it was interesting I I'm a big fan of your your show and uh listen to many of the episodes I as I walk into work or um or, or just go for a walk around the block etc and or go for a walk or whatever. Um but I kind of put it on yesterday. I had a, quite a big tender to put in, so I kind of had it on in the background. And I ran out of the office at the end of um, end of yesterday, and I came in, and there was Ray Pointer talking. Um, and it must have just <laughs> kept on playing overnight, which was quite funny. Shows that. Thank you for doing that. It helped my numbers. <laughs> um, it, it, it um, yeah, so if you've got a whole lot of n- numbers coming through from Australia overnight, that was me. Um, that was uh, one person. <laughs> and, and I interviewed Ray, and, he, and Ray was just a really great, um, great discussion. And he talked about how 20 or so years ago, Australia were innovators and, and they were leading and they were, they were hungry. And maybe, maybe we got a little bit fat and lazy as an industry. And that was his sort of mm. comment. And it was a little bit controversial. I ended up writing something for our, uh, research magazine a, a couple of years ago, research, um, research news. Uh, I think they wanted me to write about our local area, but I wrote about sort of just that, that, that sense of maybe we are becoming a bit complacent or, or how does a place like Australia with a small population of around 25 million sort of grow the research industry and export to the world. And, uh, I think we've interviewed a couple entrepreneurs research entrepreneurs in in a, in Australia James Ferguson of MDI and uh and Annesley Williams from um Quali doing really good things here um mm-hmm. but overall not always the most entrepreneurial place um I interviewed Christy Zilke from Knowledge Town and she was great when she was in Australia a couple of years ago and she said well the US is sort of very entrepreneurial but it's it can be quite negative politically and just the environment can be at times quite negative where in Australia, it's actually, it's a pretty kind of comfortable, safe kind of spot. We politically, yes, we have our, our debates and arguments, but it's, 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 it's not a, it's a pretty easy place to live. Like, so do you have any kind of thoughts on us versus Australia or hmm. small, small countries versus bigger countries and where entrepreneurship might fit? Um, so, you know, I think about Australia and I've, I had an office in Melbourne, uh, for a number of years. Mm. Um, I, the, it, it feels to me, and I'm obviously not, I haven't done the research to know that this is categorically true, just anecdotally, um, that it's homogeneous. So it, it feels very, it feels very unified, I guess is how I would, how I would put it. Um, and, you know, recently I had my Cantec, the, um, head of 
customer experience of Disney parks on the podcast and um, on my podcast. And, you know, in that conversation, she was talking about the role of diversity in the research team, the people that are actually doing the work. Right. Um, And the subsequent complexity that we have in the U S because we're the opposite, right? We are a very diversified people. Um, uh, You can ask five different people what they think, something is and you'll get six different answers as the joke goes. Right. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, whereas in like Japan, you have much more of this, like, according to her, I haven't done a lot of research in Japan. Mm-hmm. You'll have, it's, it's, it's much more of a unified, um, cultural yeah. framework. Uh, and so I think that, I think perhaps the tension that we have in the U S in a lot of ways is a byproduct of the, um, subsequent diversity that we have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the problem that we're having, I believe is categorically a lack of empathy. Mm-hmm. And at, at the, at the, um, certainly at the presidential level, as, as the world saw recently, uh, you know, professionalism. So like, you know, we, we are going to be, we will reflect the leadership, uh, as a, as a people, and um, I do think that, you know, as I look forward to the elections, coming elections um, in days now or weeks now, I guess, you know, coming up. So the, um, I mean, uh, maybe it's the case that, you know, tech entrepreneurship, which really happened out in the Silicon Valley, um, south of San Francisco, that's the only place in the world that that's happened to my knowledge. And I've listened to many podcasts, many venture successful venture capitalists and tech entrepreneurs. And, you know, that isn't something you can just like try and apply, you know, it's not like growing a crop where you get the soil temperature, mm-hmm. right. And the sun and the water and this, you know what I'm saying? All that. It's just, it, you just can't like reproduce that. I think part of that is just like serendipitous. Um, and I mean, Australia, the few folks that I know, um, uh, Daryl, founder of Research Reporter, um, I mean, you know, there's a, there is entrepreneurship that happens. And I would say disproportionately, maybe at a per capita level, even more than what you yeah, see in okay. the U.S. Yeah, okay. Culturally, the U.S., to me, from the outside, does seem like very enough. To create a business and grow a business, it does seem like part of the, just the, yeah, just the social norm. The brand. Really. Sorry? Yeah, the, the brand. I think that's right. I think it, I think it has the brand, but the brand is a long ways away from the reality. Is that right? You know, yeah. So, I, so how would you say, where's the gap between that brand of the US's building businesses versus the reality? Um, well, I, I think that the, I think that the, if you look at the numbers, you know, unemployment right now is an all time high. Yeah. Um, I think that, I think that there will be entrepreneurship that is birthed out of that. Right. But we largely have not, you know, we celebrate the unicorns, Mm. but we don't celebrate the corner stores. Yeah. Okay. Right. And, and that's, I think the big miss is, you know, really the celebrate, I mean, congratulations to the, 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 few individuals that are able to build these, you know, multi-billion dollar empires. And that's great. And I'm, I'm very happy for them and the, and the thankful for the jobs that they create. But, um, 
you know, I'm, I'm also really happy about uh, the local restaurant that lets my son wash dishes, mm-hmm. you see. Yeah. So like, I think, I think there's this, I think there's this, the brand, like the, the over-indexing on the Zuckerberg or whatever sort of like tech entrepreneur uh, you might be thinking of. Yeah. Um, and then sort of a devaluing of the main street or the people that are actually creating real jobs in our communities right now. Yeah. I know, I know in Australia, majority of people, majority of businesses employ five, fewer than five people. Many, I think it's about 60% don't employ yeah. anyone. So that's, I'm assuming it's relatively similar in the US, maybe a little bit stronger in employing more people, but probably. I don't know about, I mean, yeah. And that's a, and that you do the multiplication, all of a sudden you've got a real significant proportion of the population. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, other guests, what, what what have you? What are some of the other patterns you've sort of revealed in your many many podcasts? What 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 do you, what do you get out of doing the podcast? You've, how many episodes have you had, Jamin? Uh, about three hundred and forty, fifty maybe, um, of which I believe three hundred and twenty are published. Yeah. Um, what do I get out of it? Yeah. I've it's a I get it's for me it's turned into, um, my new Uber conference. So um, I have the luxury of picking a topic that I think is really interesting, like the role of diversity in the team of the, of market research. And um, then I get to uh, network to the people that I'd like to be on the show about half the time they say no, by the way. (laughs) So it's a long ways away from like a slam. It's always a burn, isn't it? Really? Yeah. Oh, we're a bad fit. That's, that's yeah. my most recent one. I, I, usually, so, yeah, usually I find it okay, but I, I think last year we had one that we tried to, we don't, we're not up to that number of episodes. We're closer to 60 and someone just said no. And it was such, such a rude response. And I'm going, oh my God, be nice. <laughs> what am I doing? <laughs> and he came back life? and he goes, I don't know who you are and what you're doing. I said, we met like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's all right. <laughs> that's all right. His laws or her laws. I got over anyway, it. So we think about we we uh, me and probably I would assume you as well. I actually learned. I try to learn something. I try to ask a question that I'm going to benefit from selfishly mm. um, on the sh- on the show. Uh, so it's definitely for me an opportunity to be able to get an hour with somebody that I would probably never be able to sit in the room with. Mm. Um, yeah. Do you feel? Buoyant about the future of market research and where it's going. In my opinion, I am. I've never been more optimistic about market research, um, and I'm very. Uh, I believe that the shape of market research will forever be changed. So, the role of consumer insights. I mean. The, this report, which I've cited several times on the podcast, put out by the uh, uh, Wonderman Consulting, uh, which is a CX consultancy, um, they analyze the uh, Standard & Poor's you know, top companies. And um, they do this every year. And they yeah. identify the patterns in the outperformers and the underperformers um, on the index. And so what they found was that companies that um, uh, leverage consumer insights at the point of decision, they outperform the index by like 40 points. Right. But 
what was more startling was the companies that don't, like categorically don't, they underperform by over 70 points. So the implication is that if you want to have a business in three to five years, then you better use consumer insights to make decisions. Yeah, okay. Otherwise, you won't have a business. You will you will go out of business. And and I believe that you see that um, you see that the the utilization of the insight, so the action from the insight, is is part of the point, right? So you've got to actually do like employ the insight when you're making a decision. And I'm not talking about like CEOs at a board table. I'm talking about designers when they're in the middle of, should I do this or should I do that, right? Or a marketeers when they're thinking about their ad copy, right? They're making so many assumptions about what the market's going to like. And I think that we're entering into a period of self-service where clients are going to leverage tools to be able to answer these more like basic questions faster. And I think then what they need to do is they need to have consultative relationships that can augment their internal capabilities to help them make sense of the data uh, and make sure that they're not, that they're doing no harm. As I've said many times, just because you have a scalpel doesn't make you a surgeon. Yeah. Okay. So, right. So, you know, just because you can, you have a survey monkey license doesn't mean that you're a market researcher. Yeah. Long, long, and just because you have Zoom doesn't mean you know how to conduct an in-depth interview. So, because it's a lot harder than just having a conversation. Mm-hmm. So I think that, I think the, you know, the need for us as professional researchers is going to grow. I think the, what we deliver to the market is going to change. I'm doing a lot more bids now on, um, you know, on almost like, like market research mentorship. I have one potential client and they want to do, um, some IHUTs. They wanted to do 80 IHUTs. <laughs> so right brand new product it's a piece of hardware goes into people's homes does stuff um and they wanted to distribute 80 of these across in a in a in a two-month sort of like i had study um and i'm like gosh that seems like a lot of work why don't we just look at doing 20 or maybe even 15 right because mm-hmm. an i had study can be really daunting it's a lot of a lot of work mm-hmm. like how do we even process <laughs> it's yeah. a lot of labor 80 yeah Right. But that, so that is an interesting is, point. We, we have similar where I remember having a, a digital project where a digital advisor to this, it was, I think it might have been a, yeah, no, it was a big government client looking yeah. at a website and um, it was quite complex. And they'd come back and obviously read a book about a research yeah. design. And it was, it was humongous. And we went, well, <laughs> one, it was kind of a bit weird. And, and, and two, we came back and said, this is the cost, but it was, it was obscene. I think they probably fell off the back of their chair when they said where it is. I said, we don't. <laughs> right. What are you charging, Jason? And, and, and we went, well, that's just what it costs. You don't need to do it that elaborate and it's just not going to work. And, but there is that, I guess, that interesting role moving forward of that mentorship is a really good term of being willing to go not nicely to war, like not, not like nicely to kind of fight to kind of go, well, let's, let's kind of get into a bit of, um, friction to say, well, what's the best way to get the, the best outcome. Is that fair? I think so. I think so. And I, and I think, you know, so with that potential customer, um, I responded back with, look at this is, I'm happy to help you employ the right tools to do much of this in-house because they wanted to mm-hmm. do part of it in-house. 
um, and then I will I will basically be a project manager for you, uh, and sit on top of the project and um, help run it, right? And for that, um, I estimate there'll be this many hours, and uh, this is my hourly rate, right? So before it would have been much more of like a here's this thing you guys go do it wholesale outsource. Mm -hmm. Well, they just can't. Companies are less and less you know are are doing that now. It's much more of a I can do. 50% of it in-house, and then I need to outsource the other 50%. Yeah, and that comes back to your point before about the critical role of relationships, that almost mm-hmm. going to that trusted advisor. So if they had no idea who you were and you looked at their approach and said, this is not going to work, they're not going to listen to you because you're just another person. But if they have a trusted relationship, then they they listen to you because you, you know your stuff and they'll they'll take it on board and and respond accordingly. So that's great. That's good. And that's where, you know, getting back to your point, that's, that's where I think we win as researchers is because we get to know, you think about the big growths in your business. I bet you've had some really big new customers mm. that have come from other customers. Either that employee got laid off or they quit and took another job. But then all of a sudden they're a big customer, <laughs> right? Oh, that's right. So, exactly. Yeah. And, so, I'd and, say and, that so we've that, got, we might have, I'm going to look, looking out in our office, um, I say thirty or so projects on at the moment. I've got a fair bit of work on, and I'd say they're pretty well all relationships or referred relationships. Well, we had one yesterday was a tender, which is always a bit of a um, there's kind of relationship in that, I guess, as well. But yeah. it's, that, that's a, that's a little bit more awkward. Um, but you're right; it, do, it does come back to those relationships. I think that's certainly in my life. I guess it's my, my business life. It's you don't want to stuff up those relationships. It's when something goes pear shaped and. You go from you should get an office here, and you should be because you're here so so often in the building. You might as well um, yeah, have a desk and have a chair, and then something goes wrong, and that relationship kind of dissipates potentially. So, um, so it's knowing how to maintain those. That's that's good. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Moving forward into the future, so I'm interested in this weird year of 2020 that kind of everything kind of got thrown in the air and it's a horrible year and lots of bad things happening to businesses and and uh, individuals but it's also shaken things up so i'd say the last decade or so i don't know how 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 businesses run how how brands grow etc was pretty easy to predict to a certain extent then you hit this year and it all goes into chaos do you see this influencing research in the future? I mean, a hundred percent. Look at Qualtrics or look at, uh, not Qualtrics. I'm sorry. Look at qualitative research. Uh, qualitative research is completely redefined now. You know, but I believe it's around $4.6 billion space according to SMR, uh, before COVID around a billion of it was online right? Yeah. Well, now uh, in-person has definitely shut down and now it's kind of, it's resurgent, it's, it's growing again, but it's, it's never going to have the proportion of share that it did before, uh, the in-person stuff, I mean. I'm not suggesting it's going away. I don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm just saying that like the enablement of digital technology was required for companies in in 2020 mm-hmm. whereas before it was more of a luxury or something that i would think about maybe later yeah. right 
But because it was a requirement, companies were and researchers, internal and external, were forced to utilize it, figure it out, get it done. And and so I I think that you know just focusing in on qualitative, um, I think that's that space is going to be really interesting to see how it evolves. The other thing on the quantitative side is the productization of research. So you know we've come out of a phase where survey tools were robust and would enable you to do any kind of a methodology or any kind of a questionnaire design or what have you. And then you see a rise of uh, productization platforms where uh, like SurveyMonkey just announced, you know, they have, they have their own set of, of uh, tools for this sort of automated AB testing and that kind of thing. And then, on, and then you have the savvy researchers, internal and external, they're starting to use Facebook ads as a way to do their AB testing. Yeah, okay. So yeah, they're not even using research in the traditional or researchers in a traditional way. They're using an ad testing tool to test their copy. Uh, for a few hundred dollars in a relative, you know, few hours worth of work, they can identify what's going to win and what's going to lose. Now, what they don't, what they can't ever answer is why. And that's why I think you're going to continue to see a commoditization of survey related data. So sort of quantitative data. And you're going to see more of a premium on qualitative data and insights. Okay. Um, because w- what we all know is and as we've already clearly defined you know our our customers feelings about us is what makes us secure as a business right if they like us we're going to be okay if they don't like us we're not going to be okay that's just is yeah. how it works okay and the same thing's true for our customers right if uh coca-cola's customers don't like them that's a big problem right and 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 so to that end the cus the big brands care a lot about the emotional connection that is being made to their brands. And because consumers, broadly speaking, they buy based on emotion. Okay. Exciting future ahead. So started yeah. off or towards the start talking about you as a, an eight year old rebel taking risks. What do you suggest <laughs> for young people moving forward? Young people at heart or age wise? What, what, what's your suggestion? Network. Network. What so, is, yeah. yeah. So I would I would say the the most powerful tool that you have at your disposal is social media. Social media, you know, it used to be the case that you and I could never connect with a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. I say you and I. I don't mean that like you couldn't. I, I certainly couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very hard to do that. Uh, I needed to go to Harvard Business School and have a billionaire parent, and I didn't have any of that. Right. I grew up in a. All right. So. Um, now social media has democratized access to anybody, yeah. assuming they have an online profile. Uh, and so really what you need to think about as a, uh, as a person entering into a career in market research is expanding your network because your opportunities will largely be proportional to the size and importance of your network. And, and that's where doing things like little hacks, like, um, follow, follow people like yourself on LinkedIn and, um, comment, right? Yeah. On posts that you do. You immediately, you, if you're like me, you read those posts and you're always liking them and, right. you're, and you're like, gosh, who is that person? And after three or four comments on three, three or four different posts, you start actually developing a relationship and an affinity for that individual, even though you've never met them, right? Mm. So, 
so I think there's, I think like social media really opens up access and it's a lot like a relationship where you need to understand there's a, it's a long tail of foreplay. So, yeah. right. So you, you don't just go in like somebody's post and then send them a four paragraph LinkedIn DM. You, you build that relationship with them before there's ever the DM that happens on LinkedIn or Twitter. Right. Um, and I think, I think if you're really systematic, then you can, I know for a fact, you can, you can, uh, have a lot of success. Mm -hmm. You know, one thing that people can do, I'm part of this um, virtual lunch that happens every Tuesday. Uh, I know your audience is international, so it won't work for their base timeframes, but it's from 11 to 1130 uh, Pacific standard time. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's, uh, it's a virtual lunch. I'll give you the link. Maybe you can put it in, your, in the show notes. That'd be great. Uh, it's a, it's a 30 minute session, 10 minutes. We bring in a guest speaker, uh, this coming week, we will finish a three-part series on one of the founders of IDEO, uh, the gentleman who invented the mouse with Steve Jobs. Yeah, wow. Okay. Um, and then big fan of he, these, so, yeah. yeah, he speaks for 10 minutes, and then we break out into breakout sessions, um, which are rooms of between five and seven people. Uh, and it's a great opportunity to be able to get interaction time with, I mean, some movers and shakers in the industry, um, whether they're from brands or agencies. Um, and, and, you know, it's like finding the opportunities to participate that don't cost you any money, mm. maybe just some time and investment, I think is what I, is the recommendation I would give to, yeah. uh, is, is the future looking okay for young people in the U S or elsewhere? I think, I think the future will be always be optimistic and well met to the people that rise and meet it every morning. Yeah. So if you participate get involved in things. Yeah. yeah. If you, if you sit back and expect it to serve you, then you will, you will, um, I believe that it's a harder path. Yeah. yeah. Any, any links other than the link you just mentioned that you'd like to talk about? We can obviously put it into your, your post when we set off the, I very much like your podcast, oh, which you. is that's why I reached good. out to you. Um, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and so and I, I think, think that's, and I think that's the great thing about networking. I think that we'd every now and then we'll have, um, cause we, we play with the content thing over the last few years and, and you, you do, you get interesting people like yourself and you can ask them anything. And when you, I have, I've had accountants saying, what's the point? What's your return on investment? You go, well, this is kind of the return on investment. You have someone from the other side of the world and we've got, we've got a connection now. So I think that's the, the beauty of it. I've got the, got a KPI I use where, um, we're on Wooshka as a platform we use and you can see where the listeners are coming from and you can color in the world. And I think that's, that's this beauty around the, the, your show, my show. It's, it's, it's great, isn't it? I, I think that, I think the return on investment, it's such a funny term, but I think you're defining exactly right which it's about human connectivity. And the more that we're connected and have empathy with one another, like if you and I ever meet each other at a conference, we will probably grab a cocktail or dinner. Mm -hmm. and, and, and I'm probably overstepping. You're probably like, I can't wait for this guy to hang up. But the point is, <laughs> <laughs> right, is, is that like, like we as an industry are taking time to get to know each other. And I think that's very special. And, and that has some dividend that's paid out if in no other way, I believe in, in emotional health. Yeah. And I, and I, I agree. And I, I often think all this sort of stuff is about 
planting seeds. You don't know which seeds are going to sprout, but you just do it. Networking, etc., is all part of hoping something grows. And now and then you can have that, yeah, that 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 nice network, and hopefully, um, hopefully it flourishes. So, any else? Mm. Any, any final point before we we close off and go on with our days? Um, I have a question for you. Go for it. What is the one thing you like the most that you're doing right now? Right now, I'm interviewing you, but I, 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 mean, I think besides this, I, 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 I think it, it's that the the freedom to in the way we can do research. I get, I'm, I, I will have it so my diary gets booked out interviewing interesting people. Obviously, sort of the, the podcast is one thing, but we do research studies. So that's and, and the great thing about. We do a lot of we're doing a number of these face to face or a number of different research interviews face to face, but it's great. Like we're doing some work about four wheel driving and can interview people about and influences around four wheel driving and camping, and then we'll speak to some politicians. So I, I think it's just that that that's that's there's just so much joy that comes out of that, and um, yeah, just and and just the diversity of projects that our our group has, but it sounds like your your group as well, and just researchers get to be exposed to. Um, I think is yeah, it's it's just such a fascinating kind of area that there's, there's always that bit of running a research business that's got got its joys and complexities. But I think that the yeah, certainly the biggest joy is just that yeah, that that ongoing curiosity and being able to talk to interesting people. We are lucky. We are. We're blessed. All right. All the best. Speak soon. You as well. 